my name is Fiona Zeiger and you're listening to The Migration Podcast. In this episode, our guest Svera Molland takes a critical look at two themes that have prominently structured humanitarian aid and funding, human trafficking and safe migration. With Jamie, he speaks about how one discourse increasingly gives way to the other and what that might have to do with the politics of migration. This is the last episode of our second season of the Migration Podcast and after a short break we will be back with new guests speaking about their research. We hope you will tune in. Hello everyone and welcome to the Migration Podcast. Today we're very lucky to welcome Svara Molland and we're going to be talking a little bit about his book Safe Migration and the Politics of Brokered Safety in Southeast Asia, which came out last year with Routledge. Um, so thank you so much for joining us, Svara. Um, this book is a really interesting one, particularly because I think it intersects in a way between uh, an ethnographer's perspective and the perspective of somebody who has quite a lot of experience working with a range of different migration institutions. So I just wondered whether you might introduce the book a little bit and tell us um, what you see it as being about. So the book is exploring safe migration, which is uh, a buzzword to, to be quite direct and frank, which has been, it's been taken off by a lot of different aid organizations, uh, governments even, and, and UN agencies, especially in mainland Southeast Asia, where I've done research for a number of years. And so what the book is trying to understand is when, say, a UN agency or uh, an NGO, when they are claiming to do safe migration and implement safe migration programs, what are they on actually doing? What, what, what is actually happening underneath the bonnet, if you like, of, of that discourse of safe migration? Being an anthropologist, I, I have carried an out uh, about seven years or so of uh, field work on and off, so multiple trips to, to the region, and where I've, in a way, sort of traced the supply chain, if you like, of a delivery, trying to understand this from donors' perspectives. Why on earth would, say, a bilateral donor fund something under the, the label safe migration, uh, UN agencies, what's their role in all of this, uh, NGOs, and then a range of small, very local partners that some of these organizations work with, and of course, local governments as well. So in a, in a simple uh, way, the book is, is an ethnography of instrumentalization of a policy idea and how that turns into activities, practices uh, uh, throughout in this case, Thailand and its neighboring countries. One of the things that, um, you know, in previous conversations we, you and I have had, uh, that I've always got this sense is that the turn to safe migration was in some sense as a response to some critical reflection around the word trafficking and also anti-trafficking initiatives. Um, mm. Is that impression right? That that mm. there's been a turn away from trafficking as a framework for thinking about human mobilities? Uh, I would say yes, but probably also too simple to, to just simply uh, explain it through that lens. And what is really interesting, so say for example, in the, in the trafficking and, and anti-trafficking space is that, you know, on the one hand, you can have say an NGO publicly saying certain things and claiming certain things in, in the, through the reports and so forth. 
But you know, you can sit down with a with a project officer over a beer or something, and then you will get a slightly different version of how they actually see what they are doing. And sometimes you can get a lot of sort of you know a lot of reflexive self-criticisms and so forth uh, through those conversations. So yes, partly what is definitely the case is that over the years there's been a, a growing not just a critique of anti-trafficking by academics, but also within the sector itself. Despite good intentions and all the rest of it, in practice, anti-trafficking ends up becoming uh, an extended arm of border control. It becomes an anti-immigration tool in different kinds of ways. So for example, just think of the language. Say we're going to deport some illegal migrants. I'm using that for the inverted commas. You know, that can sound a bit harsh, right? But if you say, oh, we are repatriating some traffic victims, suddenly you get the deportation sounding really nice. You know, it sounds heartwarming. It sounds like you're doing something morally good. And, and that's one thing that trafficking or anti-trafficking has done a lot. It has, it has uh, created a lot of a leverage for a range of different actors, including a lot of governments, to do all kinds of other things than except for actually providing meaningful help to people. So, so, so this has become a big disillusionment. Uh, classic example is, you know, a traffic victim or alleged traffic victim calling a hotline and then it leads to deportation, for example. There are quite a few other things that helps explain this reorientation towards safe migration. A key thing here has to do with structural changes to, to funding, actually. The way in which both multilateral and bilateral funding operates. One big structural change that has happened uh, for some time now is that, um, to put it very simply, we are, we are moved from projects to programs. So projects are often much more specific. They are, they are more sort of um, small in scale. So that, you know, that could be, say, a particular education project in a few villages in Cambodia or something like this. Uh, and there has been more and more a movement towards sort of sector-wide funding. So say, rather than you having all these boutique projects, a bilateral uh, funder, for example, will probably provide much low, more large-scale funding across the sector. So that might be, say, Ministry of Health or whatever in a, in a country. The, the discourse itself can be more easily supported by particular aid infrastructures in terms of funding. And, and this seems to me to be quite key. Uh, to, to sort of help explaining this shift. I mean, it, it sounds like quite a transition within some of the ways in which forced migration, trafficking, and mm. the whole way in which migration itself has been conceived within um, this particular sector. It sounds like quite a shift. Um, and you were there during that process, which I think is really fascinating. Mm. Um, as an anthropologist, a lot of the mm. time, uh, you know, we, we, we speak about these moments that sparked the realization that this thing was happening. And I was wondering whether you, you had any sort of um, ethnographic vignettes or stories that sort of captured some of these realizations. Yes, and this is interesting uh, because in some ways, I guess my experience was uh, not as an anthropologist, uh, anthropologist, but a practitioner. So I recall when I worked for the UN, for example, I was based in Laos at the time, and, and we had a theme group on trafficking within the UN system. So different UN agencies together with government and uh, several NGOs. And uh, now, what was interesting was that you're working there with within an authoritarian context, where at the time it was still quite sensitive, uh, sensitive to talk about cross-border migration as something that should perhaps be normalized. So what was difficult at the time within the anti-trafficking framework was to push the government on, uh, we should perhaps not say 
you know, awareness raising, right? So, you know, the, the message should perhaps not be don't go to Thailand because you're going to get killed or something like that, which is something that government bodies would very quickly go for. And I do remember a moment where there was one NGO who um, uh, came to a meeting, one of these meetings, and she shared a, a, a contact card that they had uh, approved by the, the government counterpart. And, uh, and this is one really sort of specific example of how the discourse of safe migration uh, transmutes into specific tangible activities and even objects. And one of them is a contact card. And the idea here is that, you know, if you're going to go to Thailand, if you're in trouble, perhaps, you know, it's a good idea to know who to contact if you need assistance. And, and this is something we talked about for quite a bit, but then this NGO had been able to persuade the government counterpart that, okay, this is something we should be doing. Suddenly that discursive shift actually translated into some actual changes in what people were able to do uh, at the particular point in time. So that, that will be one sort of example, I guess, which was a bit of a, uh, yeah, really was a pivotal moment, I suppose. Being an academic, I think another sort of pivotal moment for me, when it, when, which was about this transition, I guess, from trafficking to safe migration, I, I did a bit of stock take of, of different kinds of uh, projects and, and so forth. Uh, when I saw, when I worked on, on trafficking, you had no less than six regional trafficking-specific projects implemented by the United Nations. So you had ILO, UNICEF, UNESCO, UNDP, like, you know, everyone was doing trafficking. And then when I was sort of thinking, okay, what well, you know, where are we now with all these projects? And then you realize that there's only one of these projects left, which now is dead, by the way. So that means now, like, all of these projects have gone. That, that, that does tell you something about the shift, right? Like, you know, you had six regional projects by the United Nations, trafficking, this big thing, right? And then 2022 now. So this is probably about five years ago, sort of ha halfway into my fieldwork, I guess, where I could sort of see, okay, look, this means something. That's definitely you know, talking about some real changes here. But that's an interesting sort of uh, academic question, isn't it, as an anthropologist? So we talk about discourse a lot, right? And especially the Foucauldians of us. But methodologically, how do you how do you know when you have a discursive shift, right? That is actually yeah. a really uh, amazing and fascinating question that I've had with my colleagues in a variety of contexts. I, I really liked that example of the card because mm -hmm. in, in some senses I feel like often these non-human actors within the migration industry mm. actually are the, the point of manifestation of those discursive shifts perhaps but that I mean that's a big theoretical question for another time i guess yeah, um, yeah that's right but, but that big sh shift that um that you're sort of tracing here uh was it surprising for you or or was it something that you kind of expected based on your previous experience or a big question that i had for a long time is how come this discourse can reproduce itself? The anti-trafficking uh, sector ha has left, I think, a dismal pathway or, or result. There's been a lot of collateral damage. Uh, a classic example will be trafficked victims ending up in shelters, often against their will, for very long periods of time. Uh, and, and generally, you know, like, like none of these interventions. Uh, you know, look, I'm sure you can find some examples here and there that something worked out a little bit for someone, but, but generally speaking, it is a rather unimpressive uh, legacy of anti-trafficking. So for me, a big puzzle all along has been, you know, how come that uh, an aid uh, discourse, an aid sort of uh, intervention, or what Elizabeth Dunn called a modality of care, you know, like how come that I can carry on 
when uh, and again back to what I said before you, you know you can talk look you will find some practitioners who love this stuff and think they're doing an amazing job but 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 there are plenty of people who are disillusioned by it and and are very critical given that how come it reproduces itself so so that's been the surprise for me all along it's like why hasn't it changed earlier some of the ways in which I think this safe migration shift reflects other shifts within wider migration discourse this sort of trend towards relabeling and also trying to be perhaps more holistic and positive mm. in terms of the tone that um, migration patterns are, are framed within. Um, so for example, mm. uh, would you see there being connections between skilled migration and in the kind of affective labeling of these migration categories? Or um, am I kind of off uh, the mark <laughs> in terms of that? Uh... Oh, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, yes and no. There is an interesting link, I guess, to skilled migration here, because on the one hand, we're dealing primarily with unskilled migration. But, you know, ASEAN, they, they are pushing for the, you know, they're trying to emulate certain things in Europe. And one of them has precisely been a skilled migration scheme. The issue for them, of course, is that the reality, especially in the Mekong countries, like Thailand, Cambodia, Laos, Burma, the reality is, is that there are very, very few skilled migrants. So you're dealing with unskilled migration. So much of migration politics, and I'm not saying policy, but politics, uh, especially when it comes to unskilled migrants, is that uh, so much of it is is really all about it's about making sure people don't come, or you know, uh, prohibiting people, uh, closing down borders, and so forth. Or but safe migration is kind of, in some way, goes against the current a little bit uh, when it comes to all of this, and that raises some interesting questions around how you know why is it that some governments find that language appealing you know why, why does the australian government fund safe migration and as, as you know very well so, uh, the australian government is is you know uh, quite well known for a lot of border control oriented uh, policies but they they do fund quite a bit of these these um, safe migration initiatives so, so i think this is a really interesting thing too is that why is that so do you think that there are any kinds of sinister elements to this discursive shift using the Australian example as a, a key sort of example there? Or is it too soon to kind of make those sorts of conclusions? Yeah, it's, it's a tricky one. And I should say, I I do in the book, I do talk, uh, uh, some of the chapters do deal with, uh, you know, where I interviewed people from, not necessarily Australia, but but from from several key donor countries. and 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 there are a few interesting things that came out of it. So, okay, so safe migration, as I said before, part is about, and this is not new, is about legal migration, this idea of part, you know, having guest worker program type of arrangements. Uh, but then there, there's some other things scaffolded into it. And that is ideas around progressive awareness raising. There's ideas around, I guess, what we might refer to in, in, a, in a sort of broad brush fashion as, as social capital. So for example, who facilitates migration becomes important. You know, I, you know, you can imagine UNICEF in a village in a sending country in say Laos, you know, uh, they might be doing awareness raising with us, ask, who will you be going with? Are you going with a licensed recruitment agency? Are you going with, and that might be a good thing because, you know, that's meant to be good. Uh, or the, the unlicensed broker, oh, be wary, that can be trafficking, right? Or maybe you're going with your friend. Oh, that might, you know, your friend has already been to Thailand before. That might be a good idea because they have the know-how, there's a bit of trust, et cetera, et cetera. So you have all those kinds of ideas embedded into this. 
so, so the point is that part of the discourse is about legal migration, and, and that is, of course, a very state-centric way of looking at it. So one thing that, uh, you know, this idea that everyone has passports and whatnot, uh, it creates a, uh, you know, that this is, a, we know this, this is a legibility mechanism, right? So that, that, that make, means that the state knows who are here. But then another thing then, uh, which was quite interesting, and I, I didn't see this, I, it was quite surprising to me. Some were also pointed pointing out to me that part of why the language of safe migration is useful and, and kind of uh, good is that it has a certain diplomatic function between receiving and sending countries. And this is something I hadn't thought about before. So say, for example, if you're in Thailand and then you have neighboring Laos, Cambodia and Myanmar. For those of you who are familiar with this region, we're dealing with a very large number of uh, unskilled labor migrants coming across the border. Historically, a lot of this has not been documented. So we're dealing with people who come without passports and whatnot. So the question is, why don't simply say legal migration? We have a legal migration program. The thing is, if you say that, it can sound as if you are implying that source countries are incapable of controlling the borders. Because, you know, there's a binary here that if you say legal migration, that implies that it's illegal now. Uh, so that makes it uh, a little bit sensitive sometimes in, in, in discussions between uh, countries. However, if you say safe migration, that kind of takes the sting out of that a little bit. And, and it makes, you know, who can disagree about safe migration? It's kind of, it's, 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 it's one of those really sort of, um, uh, this is the beautiful thing about buzzwords, you know, uh, I can't recall the, the authors of this book, but there's a beautiful book in development studies called Buzzwords and Fusswords. So listeners can look this up. And, and, and you know, but part of the, the point here, of course, is that why, why buzzwords? What's the buzz? Uh, you know, why, why do people mobilize a, uh, around a particular terminology? It's because they're fuzzy. They're, they are sufficiently vague, so it's a bit for everyone, right? And that's precisely what safe migration does as a concept. It's, you know, uh, people who, like, like said, Australian government, who actually like to close down borders and whatnot, something we know through the COVID uh, situation, by the way. Uh, you know, like, like you, can, you can sort of buy into this discourse if you want to. And human rights-orientated NGO who really want to have free borders, they can also do safe migration. Uh, you know, ascending country, receiving country, you know, everyone can, can kind of somehow agree to do safe migration. I mean, it, it sounds like your findings have quite a lot of big implications for migration studies um, in terms of how we conceive it and also in terms of the methodology where you've been able to both work with governmental agency, non-governmental agencies and actually seeing how this mm. manifests on the ground. Um, I'd just like to thank you again for joining us today. Svera Molland is Associate Professor in Anthropology at the Australian National University.